Well, uh, let me invite you to take a copy of uh, the scriptures and turn with me one more time, uh, at least for now, one more time to 1 Peter chapter 1. We've, uh, as we've been making our way verse by verse through 1 Peter chapter 1, we've made it to the final paragraph. We're looking at verses uh, 22 through 25 today. Uh, We've seen in, in recent weeks in verses 3 through 12, Peter rehearsing some of the, the great privileges that are ours in the gospel. And uh, in verse 13, Peter turns to some of, the, some of the therefores, some of the so what's, the implications of being the recipients of such marvelous grace. Um, and that continues here in verses 22 through 25. The consistent pattern we're, we're going to see throughout this letter um, is... Peter exhorting Christians to obedience and at the same time, in that same context, grounding the call to obedience in indicatives, uh, statements about what God has done and is doing in our lives to enable this obedience in the Christian life. So we need to appreciate this again and again, we're, we're going to see the imperatives of the Christian life, the things God commands us to do, grounded in and arising out of the indicatives of God's work for us and in us. So we should never ever think that when God calls us to certain kind of obedience that we are able to fulfill the commands by ourselves, but instead we need to appreciate that our obedience is enabled by the grace of God that comes to us in and through Jesus Christ. Uh, In today's passage in verse 22, you'll see the main concern, the main ethical concern uh, for us today. And it's it's stated simply, uh, sincere brotherly love. That, That we, in Peter's words, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so this morning, we're going to think about how that imperative in our, in our lives to love one another sincerely and earnestly with a brotherly affection really arises out of the indicatives of the gospel, what God has done in our lives. And that's what enables us to love like this. Now, before we do that, let's turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. And let's read through the end of the chapter. And let's be sure to hear what God is saying to us today. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed but of imperishable Through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. I want to start this morning by sharing with you just a couple stories of brotherly love, brotherly affection, that I was reminded of this past week. Um, 
Some of you know, years ago, I, I interned at a PCA church over a summer down in Maryland. And I stayed with a deacon of the church and his family. And uh, this deacon, he, he owned a construction business, but he also had a farm on his property, a big soybean field in the back. And every night you could go out on the porch and there would be 30 deer in, in his backyard. He had 50 crop damage tags a year. <laughs> Uh, so he, he could harvest deer just about every week. Um, and so here's what he did. Of course, he, he and his family didn't need that much, and he didn't want to just kill the animals. So he would, he would go out, he would get a deer, he would, uh, he would process all the meat himself, and then almost on a weekly, maybe bi-weekly basis, he would give an entire deer to a family in need. Um, in the church or in the community. And that, that, that always struck me, watching him do that week by week as I lived with them over the, the course of the summer. What, a, what an act of Christian love. Uh, I was reminded of another story this week. This one's a little bit closer in our own presbytery. Church Kelsey grew up in. A dear senior saint there um, was recently injured. She fell. She's, she's now non-weight-bearing. <coughs> And she needed, she needed a place to stay. She couldn't stay where she was any longer. And her husband's not able to take care of her. Um, well, there's another family in the church. And they're currently taking care of one of their parents. So their house is already set up. Um, they, they understand what, what it's going to involve taking care of someone who's, who's non-weight-bearing. And uh, the wife, mother of this, this family said to this dear senior saint, look, you need a place to go. Our house is set up to do it. We're going to take care of you. And uh, they took her home without, um, without any hesitation. And I heard that story. I thought, there's another wonderful example of Christian love, the kind of brotherly affection that Peter wants us to show in our lives. You see, love, our duty to love one another is the concern of this passage. It's what God wants from us. But I think as we get started, we have to ask, ask the question, how? <laughs> how can we love one another like, like that, with sincere, earnest, brotherly affection? I think as we study this passage today, we're going to find that what Peter is teaching us here is remarkably wonderful news because he's going to help us understand that this is not a love that we do on our own. In fact, it's not a love that we can show on our own. This is a love that we can show to one another because something has been done to us. And so to, to see how we get to this brotherly affection, what we need to do this morning is trace it back, trace it back to its source. And uh, this, this passage, it has, a, it has a logical flow to it. So try to trace with me Peter's logic here. Earnest brotherly love from a pure heart. Okay, that's, that's what God wants from us. And it is rooted, Peter says, in having been purified. Notice Peter says, having purified your souls for a sincere brotherly love. Okay, so back of brotherly love is this purification. And this, this purification that has taken place in our lives. And this purification takes place, Peter goes on to say, by your obedience to the truth. Right? He's talking there about 
how when we responded to the good news that was preached to us in faith and obedience, we went to Jesus, turning from sin, believing in him. And then back of that, he keeps going, tracing it back. Back of that conversion is the new birth, being born again. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Okay, so you follow, follow Peter's logic there. We must love one another earnestly with a brotherly love. Now, how can we do that? How can that happen? Peter says it's the consequence of a purified soul that is the response, uh, that is the result of responding to the truth and obedience, uh, having been born again by the Spirit through the living and abiding word of God, the good news that was preached to you, Peter says. So there's really five stages or five steps there in Peter's logic. And all I want to simply do this morning is trace them in that order from the command to love back to the source, which provides us with what's necessary for the fulfilling of the command. Okay, so here are the steps we're going to take together this morning. First, brotherly love. Second, purification. Third, obedience to the truth. Fourth, being born again. And then fifth, the the means that God uses to effect this change in our lives. Okay, so let's start with Let's start with the command and begin to work our way back to the source. The command, love one another earnestly and sincerely. It's a call to Philadelphia. We all know Philadelphia, the city means, it's the city of brotherly love. Well, it's the Greek word for brotherly love, and that's the word Peter uses here. It's a call to brotherly affection. Now, the the qualifiers Peter puts on this call to love are really important. He says it must be be sincere. Uh, The word he uses there is unhypocritical. The word that comes from the the context of the Greek plays when people would don a mask to to play a certain persona. Uh, Peter is saying your love must not be like that. It must be without hypocrisy, without mask. It must not be uh, something that you put on for a show. It must be the real deal. Real, authentic love is what Peter is calling for here. And if we're honest with ourselves, that, that kind of love is uncomfortable Maybe we could even say it's, it's, it's foreign for a lot of people because we live in such a loveless world and time. But this kind of love that Peter's talking about, it certainly feels risky to some of us. And frankly, it is easier at times to just be insincere, isn't it? And to put on a mask, to put on a show and to give an appearance of brotherly love while we keep people at arm's length. We think of at least a couple of reasons why that might be. One of the reasons is some of us are scared to actually let people into our lives and to give ourselves to others. Perhaps we've been hurt in the past and we think it's just going to happen all over again. So what do we do? We, We build up walls. We keep people out. We don't let people know 
what's really going on in our lives. On the other hand, I think we could say there's there's another potential way to fail to fulfill this command. And And it's simply not wanting to be bothered with the demands of love. The demands of love that are placed upon us within the household of God. So we come and we we act friendly and cordial. But we never really get involved. We never really give ourselves for the sake of the brethren. We never really give what God has given to us to be a blessing to others. And so we can fail at least in one of these two ways. We We can put up walls out of fear, keeping others out. Or we can simply remain disengaged, refusing the demands of love. But neither of those options, as I said, fulfills this command that God is giving to us. So I think we need to face up to this at the start here. Brotherly love is hard. It lays claims upon our lives. It challenges us. It puts demands on us. It requires self-denial and sacrifice. It, it likely means we have to make changes in our lives to make space to care for other people. It means giving things up so that we can give to others. It is not easy to show brotherly love. It doesn't just happen. It's something we have to work at. It's something we have to learn. And yet, here's the wonderful news, Peter is saying that when you become a Christian, something happens to you. Something happens to you so that you begin to take the mask off and so that you begin to engage in the work of loving brothers and sisters in Christ. You stop hiding, you stop avoiding, you begin to love one another really and truly in relationships where, where you are known and you are getting to know others. Love must be sincere, Peter says. And then notice the second thing he adds. It must be earnest. That's what he says in verse 22. Love one another earnestly. Now, the word translated earnestly in, in the ESV, it can refer to one of two things. It can refer to intensity or to duration. The word can connote both of those things. If it's the first sense that Peter had in mind, he's saying that this, this love is it's to be uh, unrelenting, or excuse, it's to be affectionate, it's to be deep, it's to be real, authentic. If it's the duration aspect that Peter has in mind, he, he's saying love, this needs, it needs to be unrelenting, uh, unremitting. A never give up kind of love. This is not on again, off again kind of love. It's not a flash in the pan. It's something that keeps going. It's steady. It's deep and strong and abiding. My friends, given how hard it is to love like that, and given how prone we are to either put up a wall or to just remain disengaged, to keep our distance, we've got to ask ourselves, where can we get a love like this? Where does love like this come from? Think about how Paul describes Christians before God saved them in Titus. You remember the the former unbelievers, now Christians, in Crete. And he says, you spent your days um, 
basically being hated by others and hating one another, spending your days in malice. That's how Paul described them. Now, that sounds harsh, but really when you get to the bottom of it, that's right on, isn't it? It's an accurate description. So how on earth can the church become and be a community of people who love each other sincerely and earnestly? Well, take the next step with me. Look at step two. So step one, love one another. Step two, such love comes having purified yourselves. Peter says, you purified yourselves for or unto brotherly love. And it's in the past tense. That's important to notice because Peter is, what he's not saying is he's not calling us here to purify ourselves. He's, he's saying that at some point in the past, in some sense, you have become pure as a Christian. Okay, so when did that take place? Go to step three. Having purified yourselves, how? Peter gives you the answer. By your obedience to the truth. So this, this moment of inner purification took place when you obeyed the truth. Peter here is talking about the, the preaching of the good news about Jesus Christ. He's talking about the gospel. And when he talks about obeying the truth, he's talking about uh, repenting of sin and turning to Jesus Christ and trusting in him. That's what Peter has in view here. He's talking about conversion. And he's telling us that when a person gets converted, there are a lot of things going on. But he wants us to understand that there are at least these two things going on. The first thing he says uh, about conversion is that it brings cleansing. When, when you obeyed the truth by coming to Jesus, you didn't stay dirty. You came to him in your filth. You came to him in your, your polluted garments, but you didn't remain dirty. You got clean. Uh, you, you purified yourself, not by anything that you said or did, but by coming to Jesus Christ, trusting in him, whose blood we sing makes the foulest clean. Your, your, your guilt was washed away. The pollution of corrupting sin was, was broken. It's what Paul is really reminding the Corinthian Christians of in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You remember in that passage in verses 9 through 11, uh, he, he's reminding these Corinthians of their former lives. He's, Don't be deceived. And he reminds them that um, if these kinds of sins characterize and define one's life, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so he lists a bunch. He, he, this isn't exhaustive, but these are things that were certainly prominent in Corinth. Sexual, sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, uh, men practicing homosexuality, theft, greed, drunkenness, revilers, swindlers. And he says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, and such were some of you. Right? These things once defined your life, but you have been washed, you've been sanctified, and you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what happens to you when you get converted. You get cleansed, you get set apart by God, devoted to the Lord, and you are accepted 
and forgiven in God's sight. Washed, sanctified, justified. It happens in Peter's terms when you are purified by your obedience to the truth. When you get converted, you get clean. Now just bring that back to what what Peter's main focus is here about loving one another. And I hope you see how that helps us a great deal with the the calling to, to take off the mask and to learn to love one another without hypocrisy from a pure heart. Because one of the things Peter is reminding us is that when you were converted, you got clean. And that means you do not need to be ashamed anymore because you are clean in God's sight. You can take off the mask. You can let people see you in Jesus Christ because your your sin is forgiven. You've purified yourself by going to him and you were washed clean. You are clean and absolutely secure in Jesus Christ. And so you can begin to do what for many of us feels like a big risk and learn to love one another. You You can begin to enjoy real connection, real relationship, real community in the household of God. Relationships that are sincere and heartfelt and unwavering because that is what God is calling us to. The second thing Peter says about conversion is that it's an act of obedience. And that's an interesting way of putting it, I think. That's That's how he describes it in verse 22. You obeyed the truth. And so the invitation to to come to Jesus Christ, we need to understand this. It's not a negotiation. It's not an offer that God puts on the table for you to take it or to leave it. It is actually in the Bible a command. It's a command. It's an imperative. God commands all men everywhere to repent and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You know, in the Reformed tradition, uh, which we are a part, you know, we, we love the truth that God is sovereign. Right? God's in control. Um, that God reigns, he, that he is seated in the heavens. And nothing happens apart from his will. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass and he ordains the way that those things will come to pass. He's sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign in salvation. The Lord saves. Yes and amen to all of that. But sometimes we, I think, misstate God's sovereignty in such a way that communicates that human action doesn't matter at all. That it's not important. But notice here in this passage, Peter simultaneously recognizes that salvation is God's work while also saying that repentance and belief is something you must do in obedience to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must obey the gospel. You must respond to the gospel by obeying the truth. The gospel lays an obligation upon you. And to ignore that is nothing less than to disobey the truth. Do you know, as I thought about this during the week, I thought, there, there are a lot of people in, in a lot of churches, right, speaking here generally, who go to church week by week, year by year, 
And they really don't think in these terms. They don't hear the ministry of God's word, the reading of the Bible and the preaching of the word as God summoning them to obedience, to obey the truth. That's the reason why a lot of pastors afterwards hear from folks, that was a really nice message. I really enjoyed that. Never thought about that before. I'm I'm going to have to think about that as if they're this sovereign self sitting over God's word judging it. I know that's not what a lot of people mean when they're giving compliments like that. Don't mishear me. But dear brothers and sisters, how often do we come into the household of God with the awareness that in the ministry of the word, God the King is speaking to his people, speaking to the peoples of this world, and he's calling them to obey the truth. To turn from life on your terms and to put your trust in Jesus Christ because that's how we get clean. It's how we're made right with God. It's how we are changed forever and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Turning from sin, trusting in Jesus. So let me ask you this morning, please, let's all do some self-examination here. How do we listen to the ministry of God's word? Have you obeyed the truth? Have you come to Jesus trusting in him? Have you turned from life your own way? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus to get clean? And refusing to do that in Peter's terms is nothing less than disobedience to God who calls all of us in the gospel to come to Jesus and live. So all I want to say to you this morning is obey the gospel. Go to Jesus and get clean. Let me remind you here of the steps because I, I went on a rabbit trail a little bit here. Let's get back on track and remember Peter's logic. Trace the steps again so we're all on the same page. Step one, brotherly love. A real love made possible by step two, you purified yourself. This happened when step three, you obeyed the truth. Going to Jesus, you got clean. You know, you heard the gospel and you said, I am a sinner. I'm guilty and I'm corrupt. I need to be forgiven and I need to be renewed. And God did that for you as you came to trust in Jesus. Now, all of that, step four, all of that brotherly love, purified heart, obedience to the truth, all of it happens, look at Peter's words, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Back of conversion, behind our response of repentance and faith, Peter is saying, is the sovereign work and initiative of God. Think about this in Pauline terms in Ephesians chapter 2. Right? We were dead in our sins and trespasses in which we once walked. Isn't that a fascinating description of our spiritual condition? Dead people walking, Paul says. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. See, conversion is our obedience to the truth. We must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are active in believing 
and turning. But the new birth, Peter is telling us, is something that is done to us before we could ever believe and turn. We are powerless, dead, as Paul says in Ephesians, spiritually lifeless. But as Peter puts it back in in verse 3, God the Father caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's God's glorious sovereign work of grace that brings us from death to life. Now, if you're tracking with me, I'm sure that raises all sorts of questions in your mind. Some important questions that I think we've probably wrestled with before. Questions like, does the sovereignty of God, right? Does the truth uh, that the, the new birth is all God's initiative while we are totally unable to alter our spiritually dead condition until he gives us new life? Does that fact render all of the directives that Peter gives throughout the rest of this letter pointless? Does it render them all meaningless when Peter says, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you and always with gentleness and respect? Does it render meaningless Peter's call to all of us to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? In other words, Peter is saying again and again to a suffering church in exile, be on mission, be on mission in the world. Does God's sovereignty and salvation Render the mission pointless. A lot of us ask that question. Does it render evangelism and gospel proclamation meaningless? Or put it another way. Is there nothing that we could do in the lives of others by which this change from death to life might be affected? Well, here's where step five comes in. And I really think when we come to terms with what Peter is teaching here, I think it will cause our hearts to soar. I think it will thrill us to see God's way of working. Because here, in a nutshell, Peter is saying God uses means. And he tells us that God uses a particular means to effect the new birth in dead sinners so that they can obey the truth And be cleansed and begin to love one another in these terms, sincerely and earnestly. So take a look again at what Peter says. So how does God get this done? He says, we've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. I don't know how else to put it other than say this passage is dynamite. I mean, it is. It's electric when you, you come to terms with what Peter is teaching us here. It's saying that when the word of God is proclaimed, when the good news of Jesus Christ is preached, when the Bible is opened up and Jesus is expounded, who he is, what he's done, what it means to follow him, God is doing something. And then he puts it in this context of even though we're fleshy grass. That's what, that's what Peter says we are. You know, what is, what is one lump of sod speaking to another lump of sod going to do? It's a picture, you see, as, as Peter's quoting from Isaiah 40, 
a picture of just total powerlessness and temporal life, right? The grass withers, the flower falls. So how can it be that one lump of grass telling another lump of grass, the word of God, can bring about this incredible change? And Peter's answer is because God works by his word to give new life to the spiritually dead. And that means that whenever and wherever the word of the gospel is being preached, where it's being proclaimed, that there is the potential for what we could call a Lazarus moment. You know the story of Lazarus when Jesus goes to the tomb of his his friend Lazarus and he's been dead for days. And when Jesus tells them to remove the stone, people are concerned about the stench because he's, he's dead, dead, right? And so Jesus goes, though, knowing what he's going to do. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, you, you have to ask the question, how does Jesus do it? With some bizarre ritual? Does he have to rant and rave? Does he have to go into the, to the tomb with a defibrillator, you know, clear? No, he's... He stands outside and he speaks, Lazarus, come out. And by the power of his words, he brings into existence what he speaks. Beloved, that's our God. That's the power of his word. It's how God works. And it's what he's doing through the ministry of his word through grassy flesh. It's an incredible thing what Peter is saying. He's saying, this is what's happened to you spiritually if you're a Christian today. He's saying it's what happened to these believers spread throughout Asia Minor. And it's what can happen every time the word of God is being proclaimed. Death to life. He speaks, remember the the hymn, we're going to sing it this morning from uh, Charles Wesley. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. And when we come to terms with that, brothers and sisters, who would not want to be engaged in such a work? You know, we, we all have different parts to play, so don't, don't hear this as a, an obligation being laid upon you to do something you don't feel gifted to do. But as a church collectively, we are called together to proclaim the excellencies of God and to give a reason for the hope that we have within us and know that as we do so, God is in the business of bringing people to new life in Jesus Christ. And when we understand that, the possibility that God might use weak people like us in proclaiming his word to bring new life, who would not want to give themselves wholeheartedly to such an endeavor? But you know, I think as we pay close attention to Peter here, we do need to recognize that he, he puts a special emphasis on the preaching of the word. At the end, this is the good news that was preached to you. And we've got to recognize that we're really up against it in our own day when it comes to preaching. I think it's absolutely right to say that in the evangelical church today, preaching has fallen on hard times. You know, in in an image-driven culture, the church is in danger of giving up on preaching and turning to other means of communication. In an entertainment-driven culture, the church is in danger of substituting preaching with things that people find more 
engaging. And in a time of diminishing attention spans because of technology, the church is often in danger of turning sermons into sermonettes and inadvertently marginalizing the divinely ordained means of calling people out of death to life in Christ. But friends, despite all of these real challenges that the church faces today, I want to say to you and remind you that preaching still has this one thing going for it, that it is God's ordained means of calling people out of death into life in Jesus Christ. And so for that reason, we dare not neglect it. And so, friends, through his word preached, Peter's saying here, God caused us to be born again so that we would obey the truth, that our souls would be purified, and that we would love one another from pure hearts. It's all coming from God's work in us. And the fruit, therefore, of this sovereign initiative and gracious work of God in our midst, the fruit that God has caused us to be born again, so that we have gone to Jesus and gotten clean. The fruit of that is brotherly love. Earnest and sincere love. Love that serves. Love that gives. Love that's humble. Love that bears. Love that, that's patient and kind and gentle. And on and on and on we could go. But this is the fruit that shows this is what God has done in our lives individually and in our life collectively. He has called us to new life in Jesus Christ. But as I reflect on this passage, I, at the end of it, I thought, God is amazing. Isn't, isn't the gospel incredible? I know that sounds so simplistic, but that's sometimes what the gospel does to you. It leaves you dumbfounded. But this is God's way, that through his word, proclaimed. He's made us alive. And so we've obeyed the truth by going to Jesus and we've been cleansed. We've been washed clean. And so what, what is Peter doing here? He's simply calling us to be who we are. He's recognizing, dear Christian, dear Christians, you are the children of God. You have been adopted into the family of God. You are sons and daughters in God's family. So be who you are. And as those who have been loved so wonderfully by God the Father in Jesus Christ, now love one another with the same kind of love with which you have received. And so, friends, let me simply end this morning with, with, this, uh, with this challenge to us. Can we together make it our aim as a church to love one another more and more sincerely and earnestly as you are already doing. And I wonder if, rather than leave that in the abstract, let me get down to particulars and say this. Could you this week take a few minutes and think, practically, how am I going to love a brother or sister in Christ this week? And then go and do it. What would happen in the church if every single one of us 
did that with intentionality this week. I think God would be honored. I think the saints would be encouraged. And I think we would be bearing faithful witness to the world because it is by our love for one another that we are known. So can we do that together? Make it our aim from this day forth to the end of our days to love one another sincerely and earnestly. And this week, let's take some time to think in practical terms. What am I going to do for a brother and sister in Christ to show them that I love them with a brotherly affection? Let's pray together. God, we, uh, we thank you that you love us in the gospel of your son and that you've caused us to be born again through his death and resurrection. Thank you for bringing us to Jesus Christ and working in our lives so that we have trusted in him and turned from our sins and we've been purified. And now as you give us this command to to love one another sincerely and earnestly with a brotherly affection, we ask that you would help us to carry out this command in our lives so that you would be honored, so that the church would be blessed, and so that the world would Come to to us and ask, what is the reason for the hope that you have? We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.